So let's take a company like Airbnb. When we saw it, it was called Air Bed and Breakfast. They had sold, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of cereal boxes, McCain Crunchies and Obama O's to finance their business. They had uh, sold only a small number of airbed space, but could show that that was working to some extent. But the business was selling airbed space, not even a room, not a couch, you know, not, not definitely not a house in especially crowded locations where hotels had sold out. And so it's a very different business from what you see today. And you have to make that dotted line from what do I see today? What's different about this? And where where will it go? And And sometimes you're wildly wrong on where will it go, but you're trying to figure out, can this entrepreneur take this idea there? Can she make it a reality? And what I found was that every time we've bet on founders where we say, absolutely, they can make that a reality. It doesn't matter if we were wrong on our hypothesis of where it would go. They would make something interesting happen. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. As a serial entrepreneur and angel investor, I'm of the belief that startups and early stage companies change and define the world. I've seen a world, and I believe many of us have, where corporations of government have failed to innovate and change things that truly need changing. And oftentimes it is a startup or a business incumbent that comes in and creates meaning, lasting change in the world. The examples are numerous, but I think monetary incentives can be the driving force, often, to create a better world. Today we've got someone that I and many look up to, Anne Yuriko. She's been called the most powerful women in startups by Forbes and is also a lecturer in entrepreneurship at Stanford. She co-founded, along with Mike Maples, the prominent seed stage venture firm Floodgate, and prior to that worked at Charles River Ventures and McKinsey. She's a product of Palo Alto, had a rocket scientist at NASA for a dad, and is steeped in technology since she was a teenager. Some of her impressive investments include Lyft, Ayasti, Xamarin, Refinery29, Joyrun, TaskRabbit, and ModCloth. She was recently named one of the top 100 investors on Midas list in 2017 and is again on the list in 2018. Today's interview was incredibly interesting given my experience and desire to learn angel investing and background in startups. Today we cover many things including how the space race and a NASA dad transformed Anne and led her to venture, how the venture ecosystem has evolved, especially for women since 2001, the importance of living through and experiencing an economic downturn, why Anne believes we need to change our economic system to adapt to the coming changes, how AI will impact the job market and economy and why Anne is fundamentally an optimist, why we need more women in diversity in tech, how Anne sees developments in blockchain and cryptocurrency affecting our society, why Anne ultimately passed on investing in Airbnb, and the little known truth about startup success. And now without further ado, I give you Anne Mura Co. Do you meditate? I know I do, and we've talked about it a ton on the podcast. The benefits are enormous. We had Ariel Garten on the program a while back, and she founded this company called Muse. They make a neurofeedback, i.e. brain-sensing device that helps meditators, anyone really, learn to control their mind and quiet their thoughts. The science is great, and neurofeedback helps meditators achieve zen-level results in less time. I'm a big fan of meditation, as you guys probably know, and Muse is hooking listeners up with 15% off when they use our link. Disruptors.fm slash Muse. That's M-U-S-E. Disruptors.fm slash Muse if you want to take your meditation and mind to the next level. And now, let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I heard you're the child of a rocket scientist. What was that like, We're, uh, having, having mom or dad from NASA? Yeah, so my dad worked at NASA Ames Research Center, and it was great growing up here in Palo Alto because as a kid whose father works at NASA, you get used to the idea that the holiday party always involves Santa Claus landing at the uh, hangar in a helicopter. And uh, I thought that was just sort of the normal way that uh, Santa Claus made his entrance at every holiday party. And then you realized you had an awesome life. What, what year was, the, was this? Was this a uh, space race time? 
Yeah, it was back in the time of, you know, Krista McAuliffe was about to go up into space. We were making wings out of balsa wood in third grade. And the whole idea of uh, astronauts was like a really huge thing. at that. So your dad basically ruined you for a boring corporate job. (laughs) What, (laughs) What was that like as a kid seeing that? How has that impacted you? So I think my dad is probably one of the the most curious or, you know, interesting people from the the standpoint of learning. He was always very open to sharing what he did at work, whether it was bringing just home reams of paper, computer printouts that he was going through. And then when he would discard them, he'd give them to me to play with. And so, you know, I would pretend to be a research scientist going through all this data, circling things and and tearing out sheets of paper and pretending to be a research scientist. I think the other way it manifested itself was uh, you would he would buy things and take them apart. So I remember my first computer was the IBM PC Junior. And one of the first things he did was he opened it up so we could see what was inside. Uh, and when you open up a computer and you see what's inside, it seems a lot less daunting. And so I thought it was it was just a super interesting way to look at the computer and it just, it opened up a new world for me. The other example of that is my mom was trying to teach me how to sew. And so I remember looking at this machine and saying to my dad, I want to take it apart. And, and my dad was actually really cool with it. So before we learned how to sew, he just opened up the machine, took it all apart and showed us what was inside. And then we put it back together again. And, and to me that, that kind of, okay, ground-based knowledge that that someone's so open to providing that to you was a really meaningful part of my learning experience. Do you think that's missing from today's education system? I think in some ways, you know, the the piece that I think is is hard is everyone's in this incredible race to move as fast as they can. And part of that, part of that learning process that I was just talking about is actually to slow down. Because if the end goal is to hurry up and learn how to sew, then there's no point in actually opening up the sewing machine. But if the end goal is to feed your curiosity, then that's all it's about. And, and so the, the concept around what are we here to do in this session? Like what is the mission that we're trying to accomplish? I think really revisiting that on a constant basis in every interaction that you have is really critical. And with kids, that becomes a really important piece of, of how do you make education better? How do you make interactions better and more meaningful? So you're in a really unique position living in Silicon Valley, also as a venture capitalist, and you're a mom of three. How are you, how are you helping your kids in, in that way? This is something that not enough people think about. And I think our education system is failing us personally. I would love to hear your thoughts and then what parents can do. This is very interesting. As a recent parent, I would recommend that you listen up. Anne's got some very interesting views. And as a VC sitting in San Francisco, has the perfect perspective on how to help your children thrive. Yeah. You know, I actually have a lot of hope for the education system. That A person I used to work for, Ted Dintersmith, wrote recently a book called What Schools Could Be. And, and actually, it's a profile of what schools are today. And he did a 48-state tour and found these incredible examples of teachers doing things for students that were just amazing. And what I found is that you see pockets of this. And if you can magnify it and make them more prevalent, then there's a lot of hope. For my kids, I was just joking with a girlfriend as we were eating lunch that I think of summertime as this great opportunity to to learn as much as possible. I, I call it the Miracle School for the summer period. And, you know, my kids do everything that they do sort of normal summer camps and sports. But at the same time, I'm also pushing them ahead in math. And I'm teaching them the math that I want them to know, not necessarily the math that's going to help them accelerate in the next year. And then I'm teaching them computer science, and then I'm teaching them writing. And part of what I, I believe is that when you look at the skill sets that make students really successful in, in school, whether it's at the high school level or the collegiate level, none of those skills that actually make you a great student make you a great employee or an entrepreneur or creator within our world. Because the, the singular things that you need to do for school success is really take great notes, listen well to someone who is explaining truth to you, memorize that truth, and then be able to solve problems that they want you to solve 
and then be able to repeatedly do that on exams. And when you enter in the real world, it's this, it's this really crazy wake-up call. There is no source of truth you discover. You have to figure out what the problems are. You have to define it and then actually create a solution for it and then deliver that solution into the world so that other people will use it. And, and you have to do that in a team environment. And you have to do it with freeloaders and people who want to boss you around. And, and it's not an individual exercise. And so how do you create the skill sets to deal with that kind of world and that kind of future? That's something that I think about quite a bit. What about the skill sets for yourself personally? What do you focus on improving? I believe I, as I, as I get into my forties, I need to be more flexible. I need to debate less and listen more. And I need to empower people around me to be their best selves. And I think those are all things that I need to focus on more as I get older, because as I get older, I'm relying on my, my habits, my, my knowledge set, and I need to keep reminding myself that everything is always new and everything is always different. And so, so be curious, maintain that curiosity and leverage those skill sets to then double down on the places where I need help. And I think for me, the help is, you know, I feel like I can win almost any debate, but I need to make sure that I'm listening carefully and that I'm incorporating everyone else's feedback and that, that everyone else feels empowered. As it well. takes emotional maturity to reach that point. How did you get here? How did you realize that? Because that's something a lot of creators struggle with and a lot of people, especially in the male-driven tech and VC world, struggle with. I think, uh, I think so. I'm still working on it. So I don't really have a great answer for you. I think the self-awareness part is knowing that I, I have failed my organizations in the past and I want to make sure that I don't repeat those mistakes. I am blessed with a team that is incredibly forgiving and is also always on a learning journey as well. And so I appreciate always the feedback that, that I receive, but I also know that there's a long way to go. So Anne, I got you on the program because you're one of the more prolific investors, especially one of the more prolific female investors. And while it's frustrating to have to say that, some of it is the truth and some of it just needs to be said. I want to talk a little bit more about venture, about how you got into this role working with Mike Maples in founding Floodgate. Yeah. uh, So after I graduated college, I worked for five years. And of those five years, two years, I actually worked at a venture capital firm. It was called Charles River Ventures, CRV, out on the East Coast. And I worked for this guy, Ted Dintersmith, who is managing partner there. I, my second day of work ended up being 9-11. And so the economy basically already was in a slowdown mode, came to a crashing halt. And I had both the opportunity and the learning experience to see what really happens in an economic slowdown and what really happens within entrepreneurship. And I learned a lot of lessons. And, and one of the, the ideas I always had in my head, though, was that I was going to go back to grad school. And originally, I was going to law school. But the partner I was working with and the fact that I got to see my significant other at the time was going through, through Harvard Law School, I had the opportunity to realize that that wasn't for me. And I switched directions to uh, enter into a PhD program at Stanford in the engineering school. And my original plan was actually to start a company and, and be a founder, technical founder of a company. And I really was pursuing that idea even through my research. And eventually, in 2007, I picked my head up and I, I started talking to some of my mentors and advisors to see what I should do. And one of my mentors suggested that because I'd been doing research for four years, I should find an angel investor and see what was happening at the really early stage. And I connected back up with Mike Maples because he had been an advisor in one of the classes that I had taught. And I asked if I could see his deal flow. And he was nice enough to say yes. And I came in and I saw all the, all the deals he was working on and had the opportunity to start to realize that a few things are true. One was that this was the start of the, the slowdown in 2008. So I was starting to see companies that were emerging that needed much less than the traditional Series A, $5 million. And, and we were seeing all of these companies, even amongst my grad student friends, uh, entrepreneurs in the neighborhood. And because of the economic slowdown, no one was cutting checks. No angels were cutting checks. The larger funds were fleeing upstream to where there was less risk. 
And so there were really just a handful of investors and angels who were active at the time. And so when Mike said, hey, I've raised this fund and I'd really like to have a co-founder come on board. On one hand, it sounded like a crazy idea because there weren't really startup venture firms at that point. But on the other hand, it seemed to make sense. And I think this is how most entrepreneurs get started with their businesses, but it just made sense to me and not to a lot of other people. And I got a lot of advice saying, you know, go, don't start up a VC firm. That's the craziest thing I've heard to people saying, you know, you should go be an associate at one of the larger firms. Hey, Matt here. As not everyone is familiar with the startup investing market, let's do a quick rundown. So let's say you've got a startup and you're looking to raise funding. Maybe you've got a rich Uncle Joe who can help you with getting the product off the ground. As the company's growing, you have more traction and need more money. You'll go to traditionally an angel investor or an angel group who are a group of well-to-do individuals, typically serial entrepreneurs or business folks that have a bit of money and want to invest in early stage companies. Some do it to give back, some do it for returns. As the company progresses, they're going to need still more capital and then they'll go to the professional players, the venture capitalists who are working at VC firms. There's many different stages as the company grows and more money that's needed. Typically, these are different VC firms that are going to be acting between different stages just based off of their economics and what they focus on. Anne and her are a seed in early stage VC. So they're looking at early companies and they've done really, really well at it. If you want to learn a little bit more about early stage investing and what the startup ecosystem looks like, I recommend checking out our other podcast, the syndicate.vc, where you can learn more about tech investing. But I saw this opportunity in front of me. It was something I understood and something I felt. And so given the opportunity to jump on board, I ended up doing it. And Mike Maples had a killer track record at this point, didn't he? He did. He did. At that point, you know, Twitter was really starting to take off. The fail whale was pretty prominent. A dig at that moment was really big. He was early into Weebly. Justin.tv had not yet pivoted into social cam and Twitch. He had been early into reputation.com, Chegg. Uh, so there was just a lot of very early, very intelligent bets that Mike had placed that were starting to see really early traction. So you were excited and scared shitless about letting him down? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. How do, you, how do you jump into that as a, a newly minted partner? How do you get into that role? And what was your roles in the early days? Yeah. So the early days, I actually said to Mike, I didn't want to make any investments. I just kind of want to sit back and learn. So I spent the first year just basically following him around and watching what he did and trying to figure out what worked for me and what didn't work for me. And I love that partnership. I think it's the foundation for our relationship was that we had these early days where you know he'd be super frustrated about something, walk into the room and we'd be able to work it out together. And, and I could see how his mind worked and he could see how my mind worked. And it was a, it was a great foundation for a partnership. I also felt like the beauty of working with someone like Mike Maples, from my perspective, was I came from a much more technical angle. Mike is incredible on technical things and grokking technical issues, but he approaches things from a much sort of larger picture and understands marketing and positioning in a way that I hadn't seen before. And so I just really appreciated the way his mind works. And for me, it was a, a whole new skill set that I had never observed before. And for me, was just sort of magic. Did you steal the take it apart strategy from your dad? Is that how you got into understanding deals? And then for me, the, the breaking apart of companies at the very early stage is really, really hard to do. And, and the reason why is when we look at a company, oftentimes it looks nothing like what the company will be. So let's take a company like Airbnb. When we saw it, it was called Air Bed and Breakfast. They had sold you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of cereal boxes, McCain Crunchies and Obama O's to finance their business. They had uh, sold only a small number of Airbed space, but could show that that was working to some extent. But the business was selling Airbed space, not even a room, not a couch, you know, not, not definitely not a house in especially crowded locations where hotels had sold out. And so it's a very different business from what you see today. And you have to make that dotted line from what do I see today? What's different about this? And where, where will it go? And, and sometimes you're wildly wrong on where will it go, but you're trying to figure out, can this entrepreneur take this idea there? Can she make it a reality? And 
what I found was that every time we've bet on founders where we say, absolutely, they can make that a reality. It doesn't matter if we were wrong on our hypothesis of where it would go. They would make something interesting happen. Here's the secret. Every business and startup that you've seen started somewhere else, wanted to do something else, or had a completely different plan. Things change, things evolve. That's how business and evolution work. Don't feel as if you have to have all of your ducks in a row to try to change the world or build a build a business that really accomplishes something. Because none of these guys did. Airbnb didn't. Uber didn't. Facebook. None of the companies that you thought of have. They were all winging it as they went along and just trying to stay above float. So if you're interested in trying to change the world, a startup can be a great way to do it. What's the most effective way you found to read people and to find that it factor? Because it does 100% come down to the founder. It's going to be it's going to be a roller coaster. It's going to go up and down. It's going to suck. It's going to be awesome. And the one who can get punched in the mouth over and over and come back is going to be the one who wins. Yeah. So I, I've seen a couple of things that I think are really important. Number one is actually... Uh, an ability to recruit and an ability to recruit a lot of different types of people. And so I love seeing founders who are able to reach beyond their initial network and convince fairly random people to come work with them. And by random, I mean random in terms of connections, but high in terms of caliber. The second thing that I'm looking for is a desire to learn and the curiosity involved there because the, the business plan never survives first customer contact. And so we need to make sure that the founder is aware of that, cares about the difference between what they're seeing and what they expected, and then can, can change the business as appropriate, but that they, they have confidence in some, some thread within that business that may or may not have been proven, that they can maintain consistency across the board. And so it's sort of this fine balance between experimentation and conviction. And the best entrepreneurs have that balance extraordinarily tightly done, and then are able to hire as a result with incredible narrative. And if you find a founder who has those two characteristics, then you want to hold on to them for as long as possible. And it might not be the first or the second investment, but as long as you keep funding them, you're going to win. What, uh, what areas or industries are you most excited about today? What are you looking into in terms of Anne's future ball? Yeah, the area that I've been spending a lot of time in is, is in AI. And part of the reason is that I believe that when you look at enterprise software and you see the fact that we haven't had one of these mega giant enterprise software companies win in a really long time. And, you know, Microsoft is at a few hundred billion dollars. Oracle is at a few hundred billion dollars. But there are very few companies that are able to get the escape velocity to get beyond a hundred billion dollars. And counter to that, there's all these movements in enterprise software, which suggests that the fundamental architecture of software is changing. So more things have moved to the cloud. There's massive uh, movement towards mobile devices for both data entry and data capture. Um, we, we can see that intelligence and software is actually about to start making a difference. And, and the collection of data continues to double or triple every year. And so you take all of this knowledge and you say to yourself, something has to change. Like the, the infrastructure within this industry is going to shift pretty dramatically over the next 10 years. And so we're due for a $100 billion plus enterprise software company. And, and so the reason why I believe intelligence is where we'll find it is that if you take anything like a, a piece of software that people are paying millions of dollars to support as well as pay the license for, that infrastructure, which is you know data at the bottom layer, you have a business logic in the middle and then some sort of presentation layer, that has to change when you move into actual intelligent enterprise applications. And the reason is that business logic now is replaced by models that learn from itself. And in order to enable models to replace business logic, now the data that you're gathering has to look different as well. It has to have a statistical component to it. And then the presentation layer is also different because you're not just repackaging data and you're not just capturing information in a form you are actually, you know, putting out decisions and you're justifying those decisions. 
And so the, the entire stack for applications is going to change fairly dramatically over the next five to 10 years. And if that's true, then new companies will actually emerge to take the place of the giants. So that, that's, that's one area that I'm really interested in. Or be acquired by the giants. Has Oracle ever built anything? Well, they, they built their initial uh, set. The, inis- the, inis- the initial product, and it seems like they've acquired everything and sold it since. It's um, an interesting business model. So AI, a- AI in the enterprise, I definitely see that as interesting or exciting. And at the same time, it's kind of boring and mundane. Where do you, where do you see the other implications of AI outside of simply more eff- efficient software? Or what are those implications on a societal scale? Because a lot of people won't need jobs if we can get rid of them. Right. So there's a few things. So one is, actually, I would disagree that it's just uh, AI is meant to purely automate things that we already do. Intelligence actually presupposes something else. It's not automation, right? So if you get intelligence right, what it ought to do is provide people with superpowers. It should make essentially the impossible possible, or it should give you eyesight you didn't have. And so the, the ways in which I believe artificial intelligence in its best use cases will happen is when it's really tightly integrated into the way you work on a daily basis. And it's basically giving you capacity to do things you never did before. So what does that look like? I think that instead of helping you search for a needle in a haystack, so identifying more cats in videos, I think what it's going to do is it's going to help you identify things that you didn't even know to ask, the unknown unknowns within your data. In practice, what does that look like? Well, we have this one company, Iosti, which works with very, very complex data sets. And they worked with a research scientist group, which was looking at data for type 2 diabetes. And they discovered that type 2 diabetes is not just one type of diabetes. There are three different types of type 2 diabetes. And as this doctor said, it's type 2, 3, and 4. And so if you were trained in believing that there was only one kind of type 2 diabetes, you would have never looked at this data in that way. But by arming our research scientists with the ability to explore data, now you're giving them a new lens to look at this data and find something new. That doesn't replace the research scientists because they still have to understand the why and what does it mean. And I think those those are the areas where humans actually have a very natural capability that centers around intuition and creativity. And so I believe that you know the more we can center human work around the the things that matter and then automate away all of the things that we already know we actually unleash human capacity in a way and make jobs even more interesting and that's my hope i would agree with your hope i think we also make jobs less numerous i i don't know i don't know your thoughts i don't know are you optimistic pessimistic or realistic how do you view yourself i'm actually optimistic i think the the optimism though centers on a presupposition that you have to change education so i agree with you that if the jobs are remain the way they are, which is most jobs are just about taking instructions and executing them, those jobs will all go away, regardless of whether or not we have intelligence or not within our compute infrastructure. Just the fact that we have computers that can do a lot of math means that anything that's an instruction set can be automated away. So I think what we need to do is actually then train people to be able to ask great questions and question sort of fundamental first principles and be creative. Those are the things that we, we, we will rely on. The other place that I think we will see is, again, as we incorporate more of this intelligence into enterprise software and into the workflow, what we'll find is that humans are actually required to create the mutations in the system So new data sets that you can actually study. So a great example of this is Textio, which does basically job descriptions so that they are uh, not not biased job descriptions. A quick side note here, just to explain what Anne is talking about with biased descriptions. While it may not feel relevant, think about it in terms of branding, where certain brands have different messaging that will apply to different people. We've got the skater punks. We've got the Apple guys. We've got the tech nerds, all of these different things. And that all comes down to just messaging. 
which is really just images and text put together in a, in a concise way. Well, job descriptions are often like this. Typically, what you'll see with tech job descriptions is they apply or are more interesting to primarily white men, which is why we have primarily white men in tech, because the descriptions are written by other white men. So the terminology that's used oftentimes can be can be problematic and can lead to situations where you have adverse adverse selection, i.e. only certain applicants are applying because only certain applicants are interested by the job description. Anne and many others in the industry are trying to fix this. And if you think about it, where do you get these job descriptions is not from the machines. The mutations are actually coming from human writers. They're just being trained to write better job descriptions. But you still need mutations around language in order for for the machines to continue to get smarter. And so again, the creativity of individuals is still required for new data sets and to expand upon the things that the machines are already training upon. I would agree with you in some circumstances. On that one, though, I would just say mutation is much more a function of random change than it is of true creativity. I feel like a machine could be really, really good at getting rid of all of the writers in Textio if you just had a few basic parameters and pulled in pulled in, I mean, you could just pull in medium content. Yeah, I, I actually disagree with that because I think I think there's a certain extent to which uh, machines can actually interact with language, but the creativity around which they're able to do that is actually still fairly limited. And then also the human reaction to that language can be also pretty unexpected. And, and then I think the last piece is that human language actually changes pretty dramatically and very quickly based on a lot of random events. And so taking the time to have like models mutate slowly is less attractive in my opinion than the ability to react fairly quickly using that human intuition. Makes sense. There was a, there was someone that had an automatic Twitter bot posting and it was something about the NRA or guns. And they just posted after one of a terrible incident and got a ton of flack because no one thought to check the Hootsuite. That's right. And if you, if you don't think about these type of automations, you do run into a lot of problems. I want to, I want to transition a little bit. So I don't want to make this the focus of the interview because I know as a female VC who's been successful, I'm sure you get asked this all the time. But at the same, at the same time, it is a challenge that we have currently in the tech industry is that it's primarily driven by young single white dudes. How do you see how do you see the industry changing? How has it changed since you've been involved? And what would you like to see happen? Yeah, so when I first got into VC back in 2001, uh, I remember I asked the partner I was working with if he knew of any female VCs, and he really racked his brain. This is out on the East Coast, and he said he 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 couldn't come up with any general partners at the time at some of the major firms on the East Coast. And then we transitioned to a moment, you know, this year where. On the cover of Forbes magazine for the Midas list, you have a number of women who are, you know, empowered as well as harnessing the community to to bring together women to to create change. And I actually see this as a real movement today. There was a moment where people were like, "Is it a is it a moment? Is it or is it actually going to create change?" And the number of announcements of female general partners at major firms since. I believe indicates that the entire industry is very serious about this. Anne is being very, very modest here. She was listed on the Forbes Midas list, the top 100 investors worldwide in 2017 and 2018, and is an incredibly successful investor in her own right. I didn't want to let her get away with being too modest, but now let's jump back. I believe that it impacts deal flow as well as the quality of decisions that are being made. I believe that venture firms are recognizing that particularly in consumer, that the female consumer is a very powerful segment. And that if you are relying on secondhand information, essentially, I'm going to ask my wife or my girlfriend or my daughters, and that person is not at the partnership meeting, then you're fundamentally at a disadvantage. I also think that even in enterprise software where I play, that women have a very different network that we also have a different perspective. And so the way my brain works is very different from the way my partners work. And and so I think that we offer things to each other that are unique. And so to me, the, the diversity in the environment is all about a winning strategy. It's not about uh, a double bottom line strategy. How do we convey that to people? Because what I see a lot is... I see a lot of people promoting things or talking as if all people are inherently the same and people aren't inherently the same, even across gender lines, across race lines, across anything. You see that people are different, but then you also see that there do seem to be some type of trends in terms of 
in general, women are much better at dealing with others and not being dicks than dudes. Let's just say that in the most blunt, obvious and uncontroversial sense. How do you deal with something like that? Is this something where we should be pushing for 50-50? Is it something where by talking about it, we make the problem worse, better? What are your thoughts? I, I don't think by talking about it, you make it worse. I think I think creating awareness about how to think about it is really important. So, so first of all, uh, having been in a firm that from day one was gender equal, what I found was that we never actually had to fix things. You never actually had to have a moment where you said, okay, we used to de- do these outings that are very dude centric. And so now we're going to make them more gender neutral. And so actually being thoughtful about it early on makes the job so much easier. And, and the way it makes it easier is twofold, especially for a venture investor. Number one, the deal flow that you get from a diverse group of individuals actually is is a magnitude bigger than if you were if you look on a page and you see only one type of person. And we've seen this just in the data itself in comparing it against other larger firms. We were getting more female founders, we were getting more people of color walking through our door. And if you believe that the next generation founder is not all going to be part of a homogeneous group, then you have to believe that you're missing out on really important deal flow. And so I think just appealing to the capitalist sense that you really want to have an operational sense of the best deal flow and the best coverage of deal flow, then this is a direction you have to move in. And then the second piece is, if you want to have diversity within your group in order to have all the different viewpoints, to have a great representation of thought patterns and consumer voice, as well as new trends, then you want to actually attract a very diverse group of employees. And I think the problem is that without having uh, diversity from an early stage, you really have to go seek it out. If you have it from an early stage, it's a win because every time you look for the next partner, the next EA, the next operations person, you will get the full benefit of a large swath of audience who's interested in working at your company. And so that that's the benefit is that when you're maximizing for the firm in general, that's the direction you'll head in. Everyone wants the dream team and the dream team generally can do everything. I think it I think it makes a lot of sense. What industries or what venture firms, what companies outside of obviously Floodgate and everyone associated there are you most excited about? If you could just sit in on one VC's firm or you could work with one specific industry outside of your own, what would you want to focus your time on? Yeah, I'm I'm super excited about Chris Dixon's new uh, Andreessen Horowitz uh, $300 million crypto fund. And I think, you know, a lot of people are really interested in cryptocurrency and the economics that are involved there. The piece that I think is really fascinating for me is uh, going back to this artificial intelligence thesis that I have, um, artificial intelligence today is still about centralizing data in a data lake and then operating your models off of that very large data set, training your models there, bringing more data into that that data lake and then retraining your models and then pushing out decisions out to the outer edges. What I found is actually, you know, there's there's new models, whether it's in autonomous vehicles or in cryptocurrency, where we're starting to see very decentralized networks, networks that almost look like mesh networks. And the question that I've had is, what happens to to intelligence within that kind of infrastructure where everything is fundamentally decentralized? And are there ways of basically having peer-to-peer intelligence where each entity holds its own model, looks at its own data, and then tries to become smarter over time, potentially by swapping models with, with neighbors or learning from other people's models? And I think the reason why that's really interesting is that it moves us beyond this world where everyone is so concerned about privacy and security of their data and where has their data gone in the world of Facebook and Russia. I think people are asking all these questions. It's disgusting. It's so phony. I have nothing to do with Russia. I have nothing to do with Putin. Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. I want to start with just a basic question, Mark. What happened? What went wrong? So this was a major breach of trust. And, and I'm really sorry that this happened. You know, we have a basic responsibility to protect people's data. And if we can't do that, then, then we don't I deserve to have the opportunity to serve people. With great power comes great responsibility. And data 
knowledge, those in our era are power. We've seen how those powers have been misused and abused. But let's hope we can fix that with blockchain. And so to the degree that you don't have to trust a centralized entity, that you could democratize trust, that you could solve for trust with cryptography. I think uh, the whole world of cryptocurrency is very interesting for that reason. And then artificial intelligence becomes a huge problem in that sector because you have completely decentralized network. And so if I could be a fly on the wall um, with Chris Dixon's new fund, I think that would be really fascinating because they're, they're really at the cutting edge of some of the, the most interesting companies that are emerging in this sort of Web 3.0 space. It's an incredibly interesting space. I'm going to play devil's advocate. I would say that people almost don't care about their privacy. If you look at mass consumers, I would say tech industry understands that they should care. But if you look at your average dough, they're willing to give up privacy in any way, shape or form for even an ounce of convenience. So that's the that's the one hiccup I have with uh, with blockchain and decentralization movement is that it's clearly superior. It's clearly the way we're going to go. Ideally, it's the way we'll replace many governments or all government. But it has this problem of people still go to McDonald's so they can get chubby because it tastes good. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I'm a crypto anarchist, so I, I don't necessarily believe that it has to replace governments. I actually believe that people are actually making that trade-off because they feel like they have to. And the argument is that you actually don't have to. If you can replace this notion that you have to trade privacy for the benefits of set of services, then 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 you will because the set, sets of services is wonderful. But if you actually create a world where you don't actually have to make that trade-off, I think people would choose not to. I also think that the government itself is actually quite concerned about this. So if you look at Europe and GDPR, there are clear indications that people, at least within government, want to figure out a way to maintain privacy for individuals. And, and then I think that when you look at specific types of information, there are also places where people definitely don't want that information to be public. So I would say your own health records, your financial records. Those are all things that you definitely don't want out in the public world. And so the, the degree to which you can actually have full control over that data for yourself, I think is really exciting. Especially in healthcare, because we can get rid of almost all of the cost. With GDPR, though, a lot of the emails I've gotten is basically saying, accept this new terms of service or leave our service forever. Sorry. That's, ba- that's basically been Facebook and Google. And I mean, I don't know about you, but when GDPR went live, I probably got 200 emails from different Yeah, that services. was a big joke, right? Like, oh, great. With GDPR, now you got lots of spam. You got lots of spam and pretty much people laughing on the rules. The first, the first 4% fines for Facebook and Google will be very interesting. That's a ton of money. That, uh, that will definitely change things. Now, I want to I wanna shift gears a little bit. You've had a ton of success as an investor. You invested in Lyft, Xamarin, a bunch of other companies. What's been the most interesting or exciting investment for you to date? The investment in Lyft has been sort of this really interesting ride just because I've been on the board, I'm still on the board, and I've been an investor since 2010. And it started off with them being a platform for ride sharing in 2010 as a company called Zimride. And they were selling that platform to universities. They eventually sold it, sold it to corporations. And really in 2012, uh, built out a mobile app for, for peer-to-peer gar- car sharing or ride sharing. and and I think the, the thing that's been really exciting for me is that you take a look at the original Zimride pitch deck, which was all about why transportation actually is a fundamental economic mover and that changes in transportation will create massive shifts in the economy. That vision is actually going to come true. And it's going to come true because of these transportation networks and the the fact that people aren't purchasing cars as much anymore, it's going to come true as autonomous really takes hold. And I think that these changes actually make it really exciting in terms of, well, what does that mean for the fundamental fabric of the US and what our society actually looks like today, what our neighborhoods look like, how will that actually fundamentally change as a result of how transportation changes? I think even today, we really don't know. And there's a lot of really interesting arguments around that. But I think that that place, finding great investments there can actually be very interesting. What would some of your thoughts be on those changes? I know I have my own and we've had some people on the program. Yeah, so I actually, I believe that 
while the urban environment will continue to see more concentration, you will also see actually a lot of suburban spread. And I'm really interested in what that suburban spread community will look like. Because the current suburbs are really a 1940s, 1950s fantasy for the urban development, but it doesn't actually reflect the way people want to live today. And I think as we start to want more community, more actual in-person interactions, the way that actual community is built will have to change. And then I think autonomous actually enables that because now you'll have these basically room on wheels where you could either get work done or you can exercise or you can get services while you're on your way to work or on your way back from work. And it'll become a real extension of your your work time. And so I, I do believe that, you know, if you go two hours out of San Francisco and you head south, there are places where you could buy ranch land for, you know, $200,000 for 40 acres. And what can you do with 40 acres, I think, is a, is a really interesting question. Two-hour commute with autonomous feels doable. Feels doable, but I still feel like two hours would be a quite a bit. But I can definitely, I can definitely see your point. That said, though, as we have autonomous vehicles, we need significantly less. Potentially, we could just get some, rid of some of these troublesome streets and parking lots and have much, much larger cities. I also think that rural America is going to be in a lot of trouble because people won't be stopping there anymore. So all of the economy that runs through traditional small towns will, will start to evaporate. Does that mean we're going to have cities and suburbs and nothing else? I think that's a that's a hard question kind of regardless, right? And I think regardless of autonomous or not, you're seeing a mass movement of people into cities. And I think you see this actually globally. And and so what happens to a few things, you know, elderly people who are living within these communities who takes care of them? Actually, how do you support an economy when actually all the youth are leaving? Uh, th- that's more of a societal problem and not just solved with, transportation changes. I also think that in terms of where you build communities, it's going to be centered around jobs. And so it comes back to our earlier conversation in terms of what are the jobs that will exist in 10, 15, 20 years. And I think until we can answer that question and and really start to develop education and training around that, the mass movement of people into urban environments will continue because that's where all the opportunity is. And the excitement. Let's face it, just having other people and spontaneity around is is quite valuable. Yeah. Not only for entrepreneurs, but just for general social life. Yeah. And I know I know you're incredibly busy. I have two last questions for you. Okay. And number one, number one, you may have already covered, but anti-portfolio. Outside of Airbnb, who have you missed on? Who who walked away? I missed on uh, Pinterest and GitHub. So we saw GitHub in 2008. And then um, I saw Pinterest in a similar period, probably 2009 or so. And I turned down Pinterest because it was at the angel stage and I didn't understand what they were trying to build. And then went back to them later on and begged them to take my money before they did their injuries and Horowitz round. But it was probably too late for Floodgate. GitHub, we got actually a lot closer. So in 2008, we got to a point where we were talking to the founders. They weren't taking any meetings with early investors. And we asked them, uh, at one point, they said, okay, let's do this. And we said, okay, well, how much do you need? And you know, what, what would you do with that money? And the conversations actually stalled at that point because I think they were just too busy building GitHub at the time. They were too much of developers and not enough of businessmen. They didn't know what to do with the money once they once they got it. I still it. kick I, myself I, yeah. for that. I should have just given them a check anyway. It happens. It happens. And what call to action would you have for our listeners? What do you want to leave them with? I would love your listeners to really engage in thinking about the question of prosperity. And in all of the ideas that are presented, whether they are in things like AI or autonomous, in new companies, cryptography, cryptocurrency. I think the place where we go wrong is we only think about disruption and how we upend industries. I would love for more of our founders and our investors to always think about how we deliver prosperity to the global stage. And if we could think about that at the early stage and really try to deliver upon that on a consistent basis, I think we could change the narrative for Silicon Valley and the rest of the world. UBI? What's that? 
UBI, universal basic income, it becomes more complicated if you try to do it purely capitalistically because it seems like exponentially returns. Yeah, I think there's, much, a, much more there's a lot of, um, with universal basic income, I think there's a lot of uh, other other potential problems. You can even solve it with negative, negative taxes. I, I actually believe that people like to have purpose. And so I do believe that we need to provide purpose for every individual out there. And I don't think UBI actually answers that question. If we have to provide purpose for them, it almost sounds as if we're leading sheep. I'm not saying Some we people... have to provide purpose, but we have to create okay. opportunity for people to pursue purpose. I can completely agree with that. I think we're entering into a very new and potentially creative renaissance as we look into either that or bulletproofing your Teslas to survive the revolution. It's one or the other. <laughs> and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna see how it goes in the, in the coming years. It'll depend on the governments. I imagine some will handle it much better than others. And thanks for coming on today. It's been a lot of fun. Where's the best place for people to reach out? Uh, Animaniac at Twitter. That is such a great Twitter handle. It's with two N's though. Yeah, it was my nickname in college. Uh, I see. We'll throw, we'll throw links and everything into the show notes, guys. Fringe.fm. You know what to do. If you like this, reach out. And of course, subscribe. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Thanks as well, Anne. This has been a lot of fun. And let me know if I can ever be helped. All right. Bye. Listener, before you go, if you like Fringe FM, consider making a tax-deductible donation to support our mission. Yes, you heard that right. Tax-deductible. Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a registered 501c3 nonprofit focused on advancing science worldwide. This means you can write off your donation for tax purposes and possibly even get your employer to match the donation, all of which would dramatically boost the level of good we can do in the world and the quality of the show that we can produce. To learn more about supporting Fringe FM and whether your gift would qualify to reduce your taxes, please visit fringe.fm give. If you care about our mission, please support our efforts. You are literally deciding whether or not we can continue and how much of an impact we can make. Again, that's fringe.fm give to learn more and support our cause. Thank you. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.